It's been 10 years since two men were beaten and shot to death inside the home they shared in the Turtle Creek neighborhood of Jacksonville. 10 years and no arrests. I'm Paige Kelton with Action News Jax, and we've partnered with Project Cold Case and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to put the spotlight on unsolved local crimes. The goal? To generate a tip that leads to an arrest. In this edition of the Project Cold Case podcast, our Lorena Inclan talks to family members about their decade-long search for answers and why they refuse to give up hope. Forty-one-year-old John Stoner was married. He was a dad and even a grandpa. He moved to Jacksonville from Pennsylvania to start fresh in a new city. How long was he living in Jacksonville before he died? Almost two years. His sister, Siobhan Gerard, can't forget that day, March 5th, 2008. I was at work and I got the phone call that he had been killed. And I flew right down. I didn't believe he was a dad. I kept on calling his phone. And Stoner had been beaten with a bat and shot to death, along with his friend and roommate, 69-year-old Leonard Davis. They lived in this corner unit on Hearts Road with Stoner's wife and their two kids. Ten years later, and the apartment complex has changed its name, but the unit where it happened remains the same. JSO tells me that it was Stoner's own teenage daughter who discovered the bodies. They were in a back room, badly beaten and shot. I cleaned up the room. I did. It was a mess. His, his handprints were all over the walls. There was pieces of them all over the place. Detective Ray Reeves has now taken over the case. In this, you're going to, there, there are photographs, there are discs from interviews at the time, um, transcripts from um, some potential persons of interest. At least two persons of interest, likely underage at the time, were named. It was not uncommon for the young people to hang out over at their apartment. One of the working theories is that the men were killed over drugs. This was an apartment uh, that Mr. Stoner and Mr. Davis were selling marijuana out of the apartment. And so that opened up another huge avenue of people, of clients, as it were, to, uh, to speak with. Reeves says the apartment had been ransacked. Money and a gun were also missing. We're looking for, um, in particular, two people to talk to and some and some physical evidence or some of that proof uh, that we would need to hopefully bring a charge. Despite the passage of time, Gerard says she's still grieving. We need some kind of closure. We need answers. The murderer took more than her brother. She tells me they also <laughs> took her peace of mind. I don't want this to happen to anybody else. And these kids need to get off the streets before they do it again. Lorena Inklan, CBS 47, Action News Jacks. For all our listeners on the podcast, we're joined by Siobhan Gerard, right on Hearts Road in the area where your brother lived. We're standing right in front of his apartment where he was killed. Uh, tell us what's, first of all, I'd like to get what's going through your mind right now as we stand here today. I want them caught. I want justice for my brother. It's hard. What's it like? I mean, I know that you haven't been here in 10 years, is right? Is that right? Yes. 10 years. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I know it's not getting any easier, even though it's been all these years. Tell me how um, it's been for you coping with this, dealing with this. It's been real hard. I lost a lot. 
I just deal with it day to day and sometimes it's really hard to deal with it. And no one's helping me except for my kids. That's all I have left. Tell me a little bit more about your brother as we make our way down here. Um, so he was your he was your baby brother. Yes. Okay. He Before was you guys close. Very. We talked every day. All the time. And he was thinking about coming home. And I, he needed money to come home, and I didn't have enough to send him. Where's so, home? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. And I feel partially responsible because I didn't bring him home. But he was married and with, with two kids, yep. right? Okay. Yeah. Well, he has three kids. Three kids, okay. He has two with Valerie and one with someone else. She's 34, Tony. What brought him to Jacksonville? A new start to get away from the Poconos and try a little bit of a city life. Mm -hmm. How long was he living in Jacksonville before he died? Almost two years. Two years. So he was two, only here for two years. That's not long at all. No. Did he like it? Did you guys talk while he was here? Yeah, he loved it. Yeah. He wanted me to move down here before I did. And I just wasn't ready to. Take me to that day back in 2008. Where were you when you learned the news? I was at work and I got the phone call that he had been killed. And I flew right down. I didn't believe he was a dad. I kept on calling his phone and nobody answered. Nobody answered. When you learned the details, because it wasn't just him who was who was killed, but also his friend, who also, oh, I hear, also lived here with them, right? Benny. Yeah. It was yep. a gruesome scene, according to police, and you were telling me earlier that you had to clean up that room. I cleaned up the room. I did. It was a mess. There was his handprints all over the walls. There was pieces of him all over the place because he had been shot in the head three times. And he was just, it wasn't nice. He was broken. They beat him with a baseball bat. He was just broken. It was hard. He was a mess. His face was all distorted. I didn't. I stayed here for three weeks after it happened. You came down from Pennsylvania? Yeah. Siobhan, uh, it's been 10 years, and still nobody's paying for these, these two murders, because two people were killed. What, what is that? How, how does that impact you? I don't like the fact that they're going on with their life. They're all happy. They have families of their own. They're working. I don't know if they're law-abiding citizens or not. I have no clue what anything about them, but all I know is my brother was taken from us and it hasn't been right since. Not at all. Do you um, feel like these people are still alive out there? Yes. And do you think it was more than one person? According to the some of the police report, there was a seven, including the driver of the car that was left outside. And do you believe that the, it was planned? Yes. Why? Because the person that everybody knows did it said he put a lick out on my brother two days before it happened. So they were keeping an eye on him? Yeah. 
these were kids, they were kids, they were between 15 and 17 years old. And they were kids that he brought into his home, he fed them, he clothed them, he sheltered them, and he got his income tax check back and they wanted to do their own partying with it. And Mm -hmm. They took him into the bedroom and mm -hmm. and Lenny heard the ruckus in there and he went in to help him and they killed Lenny too. Why kill them? Ask him for the money. He would have given it to them gladly. He gave you everything else. He gave everybody everything he could. He would have given you whatever you wanted. You didn't have to, you didn't have to kill him. They didn't. They really didn't. JSO said that it, it was a robbery too. I mean, they, they were. They took money and cameras and DVD, stupid stuff. But they did take all the money that was in the house. Mm -hmm. The one of the there was a cable person working in one of the apartments next the door. The one right next door. Yeah. That person, JSO says, saw one juvenile run out the back. Um, when you think about how many people might have seen something, there's potential witnesses out there, and nobody has really given JSO that one piece of, I guess, evidence that they need, well, how does that make you feel? I kind of understand they're afraid, but do it anonymously. Say something, don't keep it in because everybody else is suffering while everybody, you are going on. Mm -hmm. We need some kind of closure, we need answers. Mm -hmm. That's all we need. Mm -hmm. How's your family been? I know that uh, his daughter found their bodies. Amber, mm -hmm. she did. Um, they're okay. They've moved on with their lives. They're not doing the best that they can do. They're not dealing with it very well. But none of us are in contact anymore. Because mm. some of these kids were Amber and Valerie's friends too. And they know a lot and won't say anything. Why, why do you think that is? Because Amber was dating one of the boys. And they just, you know, and Valerie lied so much saying, I don't know any of these people, but yet they were in your house every day. You know, she's covering up too, I guess. I don't know. To think that it was potentially teenagers who beat two people and killed two people, the violence of it for somebody so young, it's hard to wrap your, your mind around that, that somebody who's so young can be capable of that. It is, because I don't understand kids anymore. I don't, it's like, well, I don't understand kids anymore. My generation would have never done that. My kids never have done that. My grandchildren don't do it. Is it just this area? No, but it, this is the area I focus it on because it happened here. Siobhan, what's your message to whoever may be watching that might know something? Please tell somebody, just tell somebody, make it right. Please make it right. We all need it to be right for a change. I can't go on like this. My kids can't go on like this. I've lost my sisters. I gave up my marriage to just try and find a little peace for him. I've walked away from everything for my brother. Tell me about your relationship with your brother. How, how close were you guys? When I got married, I brought him with me. I mean, I helped raise him. My brother was always with me. He was like one of my own. He helped raise my kids. He was always in my life, always. 
always right there. But it's hard, you know, it's hard. It's just, I can still hear him sometimes. Last time I talked to him before, I'm sorry, before I moved down here, I was working in Salvation Army and he came in, he looks at me and he goes, I need 50 cent. I said, for what? He goes, pack of cigarettes, I need 50 cent. It's like, that's all I hear in my head is him saying 50 cent. So, what do you want people to remember about your brother? That he was a good person. He's not what everybody's saying he was. He wasn't a thug. He moved into the wrong area, that's all. Yeah, you know I mean, they called him White Man John. Well, I don't know why, but I do. Mm -hmm. Do you think he maybe got caught up with the wrong people? He did. He did. Mm -hmm. He put his trust and faith into these kids that didn't deserve it. He should. I don't understand. I've become cold. I won't help as many people as I used to. I have a very select few people that I'll talk to because I'm afraid. I don't want this to happen to anybody else. And these kids need to get off the streets before they do it again. They figure they got away with it once, we're gonna do it again. You know, and... Is that your biggest fear that... It's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. It's only a matter of time. If it hasn't already. Thank you, Siobhan. Anything else you wanna add that maybe I didn't ask that you wanna no, tell us? Thank you so much for your time, though. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Detective Ray Reeves. I appreciate you. And for all of the listeners on our podcast, on our Project Cold Case podcast, today we're talking about a double homicide that happened in 2008. So Detective Reeves, set the scene for us. Okay, thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, so this took place on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, March the 5th, 2008. And like you said, it's a double homicide. And it's not that all of the homicides are not... Um, you know, compelling and, and tragic they are. And this one, there's some particular um, things that, that take place in this homicide um, that have obviously, because it's 10 years later, have, uh, have stumped the detectives. Um, we've recently taken a look at this, but kind of to set the stage of, of what took place that day, um, John Stoner is found deceased along with his friend, Leonard Davis. Uh, Mr. Stoner is a white male, he's 41 years old. And Leonard Davis was also a white male, uh, 69 years old. Um, they lived at uh, 11050 Hearts Road. That at the time was Forest Lake Apartments, and currently that's Canopy Place Apartments. Um, this is on the north side of town, off of Dunn Avenue, near uh, the 295 and, and 95 area of town. Um, so they lived in the apartment. It was Mr. Stoner's apartment. He lived there with his wife, Valerie. Uh, they had a 16-year-old daughter, Amber Stoner, and then there was a son as well. And I, I don't have his name with me. He was younger, uh, 14, I believe, at the time. And so the family lived in the apartment. It was apartment number uh, 1801. And Mr. Davis lived there in the apartment with them. It was a three-bedroom apartment. Um, so on the afternoon of March the 5th, 2008, about one o'clock in the afternoon, Amber was coming home from school, returning from school. She goes inside the apartment, um, doesn't hear or see anyone, is looking for her dad, and then tragically discovers uh, both Leonard and uh, her dad, John, in deceased in the back master bedroom. They were both in the same room. Um, and they had been, uh, 
had been killed. There were gunshot wounds. Uh, Amber runs out of the apartment and is yelling and screaming, obviously uh, hysterical. Um, some neighbors find her residence, so the apartment find her. They call contact uh, the police, call, uh, call 911. Within minutes, a patrol officer who was in the next apartment complex over off of Hart's Road returns, um, uh, or I'm sorry, responds to the scene finds this, uh, this young lady and begins uh, to find out what, what has happened. Um, we know that uh, about three, I mean, sorry, about 1.20 that, that day, uh, so this would have been about 20 minutes after Amber had found her um, father and uh, Leonard in the home. Um, Amber's mother, John Stoner's wife, calls Amber on Mr. Stoner's cell phone um, the wife's name was uh, Valerie, and she's a white female, 36 years of old, uh, 36 years of age at the time. So she worked at Sally Beauty Supply up off of Dunn Avenue. She calls John just to check in, um, and uh, and the Amber obviously is hysterical. Tells her mom, hey, "There's dad's been shot. He's you know not not moving." She responds to the home. Crime scene tape had just been set up. Um, and she uh, talks to the police at that time. What we know from the investigation uh, is that that house, apartment, uh, as it were, 1801, uh, drugs were sold out of the apartment. Um, we do know that. Uh, and again, and I think we've mentioned this before in, in cold case, in homicide, mm -hmm. um, whether people are selling drugs or not selling drugs or if they're, whatever their mm -hmm. lifestyle choices are, we're still gonna do everything within our power to investigate and bring to justice those that are responsible. So that doesn't have an effect on us doing our job, um, but what it does is it gives us uh, more areas to look into. And so they did that. They found that this was an apartment uh, that Mr. Stoner and Mr. Davis were selling marijuana out of the apartment. And so that opened up another huge avenue of people, of clients, as it were, to, uh, to speak with. Uh, and the detectives did that. Uh, a myriad of, of detectives were called out to the scene and have been working um, this case until it um, unfortunately did go cold. Um, Valerie Stoner said that she left to go to work that morning uh, about 10.30, 10.45. And when she left, uh, Amber had already gone to school. She left about 7 to go to school. And when she left, there were three uh, young men that were in the house with um, John Stoner and Leonard Davis when she left for work. Um, she uh, cooperated with the police, gave them information. Um, through the course of this lengthy investigation, detectives uh, talked with all of them. One of them was ruled out fairly quickly um, and gave some information to the detectives. And the others have been interviewed multiple times. There's been some things that linked them to, they initially didn't tell the truth, they weren't in the apartment, but we know that there was some physical evidence plus mm -hmm. um, Valerie's cooperation and letting them know. So there have been persons of interest that have been um, identified in this, but as of today, uh, there's no suspect or suspects that have been named specifically for the homicide. Mm -hmm. um, we know that they were both shot, and we also know that Mr. Stoner was, um, had suffered blunt force trauma to the head, and there was a, a baseball bat that was found in the home as well. What do you believe the motive was? So, um, you know, looking at it from not being one of the detectives that was there, kind of reviewing, having the, the opportunity to review all of their work, um, there were some great 
um, detectives who, who, who worked on these. And so I would say something to do with the drug transactions. So maybe it was to take, there were some items that were taken from, from the apartment. So there was uh, some robbery, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a robbery element that I, that I would say that took place. So we, I would say that that had something to do with either um, it was a feud between somebody else who was selling drugs, and so and this is speculation, um, or perhaps it was uh, strictly just to rob them of the drugs. Um, we know that they had been selling, and that, that it was not uncommon for uh, the young people to hang out over at their apartment, and that's one of the things that Valerie uh, was a little bit hesitant to say initially, but, but she did come off of that. Um, and that this day would not have been any different. It doesn't look like it was necessarily um, pre-planned that these were, um, that we know that uh, there was a gun stolen and that was quite possibly the gun that was used um, okay. for the shooting. Gun stolen from them? From, from the, the house? From, yes ma'am, from, okay. from the apartment itself. And so you've got a baseball bat that's there that belonged there. Um, mm -hmm. It was the son's baseball bat. You've got a gun that was quite probably used uh, that was taken from there. And so these weren't things that were brought to the scene, but were readily available at the scene, mm -hmm. um, is kind of where the detectives felt uh, felt that was um, kind of led to, to this. But the gun was not found at the scene? It was that not, was no. Okay. The gun was taken, the gun was missing from the scene. Missing. Okay, and you believe that might be the gun that was used it, on it, all indications are that that was it, but without, okay. and, I, and the reason that I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to say that it was, because it, it hasn't been tested, there, right. there isn't a proof positive of that. It's the same caliber of gun that was used, that was stolen from, uh, from, mm -hmm. um, from the apartment. Mm -hmm. the, so this was in 2008, yes. DNA testing already existed. So there point. were, there was a lot of the, uh, the items that were, that were um, run through uh, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for DNA testing. Um, a, some of that technology now has, just like with everything else, with cell phones, cars, with televisions, uh, has, has progressed to the point that there is probably the likelihood that we can retest those. We've just begun, begun looking at this case. Uh, and so there's some things that we need to vet through, some information that need, we need to, to match up to. Um, in these cases, we'll, we'll go and pull the property from the property room. We'll look and make sure that it's still usable from 2008. It's not a 30 or 40 year old case, mm -hmm. so we're certainly hoping that everything at this time was packaged in accordance to what we are doing now, the standards that we do now. One of the things that's very easy to do when you look back at cold cases is to, is to become judgmental. Well, they did it this way or they should have done this. Mm -hmm. But the reality is you have to understand that they were doing it by the standards of that day and by the procedures of that day, um, we have, just like I mentioned, in cars and everything else, we've, um, we've become better at what we do. And so there may be some things now that we can bring up to the investigative standards that, that we have in place now. Um, and so, and we're certainly hoping with this case that there's some DNA that will help with that. And even some latent prints and fingerprints as well mm -hmm. that, that need to be re-examined. And so this binder that we have on the on the desk looks really large, but this is so this is not you bringing it to today's standards. This is what you found. Yeah, this is currently okay. now. This is not a this was not a paperless society, of course. Right. Um, and these this is a one homicide investigation, but of two individuals. But it's one scene. They're both found in this back bedroom of the apartment. Mm -hmm. And so in this, you're gonna there there are photographs, there are discs from interviews at the mm -hmm. time, um, transcripts from. Um, some potential persons of interest. Mm -hmm. um, um, there, are, there are latent print cards, there are telephone records and subpoenas, just a myriad of things that are housed in, in, this, um, in, in, in this notebook. 
the so at this point uh, you have names obviously of yes, persons of interest. Yes. And um, what happens with that? Is it going back, retracing? It, it will be. I actually began that uh, yesterday. I spent okay. some considerable amount of time yesterday afternoon um, looking through and finding out where these persons of interest uh, are now. Um, all the ones that I found are still alive. Um, some are in jail. Uh, some are not in jail but do have a criminal history. Again, that isn't any indication that they were involved in this, but there are some things in detective work that we call clues, and those are mm -hmm. some things that popped up this weekend um, for me as I, as I began searching for these persons of interest to find out what, you know, what, what other things have they done if they were involved in this. Uh, we know that there's, their names are attached. We know that their rap sheets are attached to this. We know that they were interviewed. I listened to some of those interviews that the detectives did. Um, and so if their name was attached for whatever reason, unless they were cleared from being involved in that, and there were a few of those that the detective said, I just began that research and looking into to where these folks are now. And I know there's a, there's a whole host of reasons why a case goes cold. Yes, ma'am. But it, it does appear like there, it was during the daytime that this yes. happened, right? I That's mean, correct. And it looks like a pretty uh, I mean, there's people living around there. There's, right. It's an apartment. It's not a house. I mean, yeah. that means they share a wall with somebody else. I mean, that's correct. Somebody so must have heard something. So we, seen we something. know that uh, we have a witness. We have a, a there's a cable. Uh, there's a man from one of the cable companies that's installing cable in the apartment next door, and that apartment was two story, and he was upstairs in the back bedroom. He sees a juvenile at 12:30 run out the back door. So yes, you're right, it's an apartment complex, everyone's on top of one another, um, and there were a lot of people that were interviewed out there. Some of them gave conflicting information, some of them gave um, information that was very uh, damaging towards uh, some of the suspects, but at the time, they, they may have uh, felt who was responsible, but there, but there just wasn't that proof, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And so when we look at these, we're gonna begin there, not, not in any judgmental capacity, but we're looking at what they did and then learning, gleaning from that and then moving forward. And mm -hmm. so we're looking for, um, in particular, two people to talk to and some, and some physical evidence or some of that proof um, that we would need to hopefully bring a charge. Was there a getaway car in this? Um, there was not one that was uh, noted at all. There, no, ma'am. And so this cable person saw one person yes. run out of the one person run out the back door. Okay. And I brought some photos, and it shows the um, the front of the apartment where they were, the back door of the apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that there was no forced entry, so okay. whoever it was either was let in um, or were already inside. There was right. no there was no um, no entry uh, forced entry whatsoever. And is it, do you know what they had been selling the marijuana out of that apartment for a long time? Meaning, um, did they have well, a long list of clients? In all actuality, uh, they had moved here from uh, up north Pennsylvania, and they had moved here less than a year ago. So they, during that time frame, uh, they were able to begin this um, enterprise, I guess I should say, out of, mm -hmm. out of the apartment. Um, now, um, this was from everything that's noted in this report. This was Mr. Stoner and Mr. Leonard, and that Valerie Stoner had no, um, was not using or selling those things, right? Mm -hmm. And there were two kids living in there too. Yes, yeah. there were. A 14-year-old, uh, I believe 14 at the time is what one of the notes said, and then 16-year-old Amber, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. And, um, and they, they lost their father mm -hmm. during this, yes ma'am. Was Amber able to provide a, any 
So in terms of what she saw. They had uh, some great conversations with her. She knew some of the people. Um, she, she had already gone to school. So when the three juveniles, and they were juveniles that were there in the apartment, uh, after she left for school, but she did know them and she was able to give some information about them and that's how some of those folks were originally uh, contacted. And those are the people of interest who will be yes. that were there Two that of day? Them. Two, Two of them were. Okay. Yes, ma'am. A lot to go through right. in this case. Right, certainly is. Yes, ma'am. The fact that it was um, a double homicide though, and, and as we mentioned, any homicide is, is tragic and, and horrific, but this particularly sounds extremely gruesome yes. and that potentially the persons of interest are, are juveniles and two people are killed here. Yes, ma'am. Um, what does that say about this particular crime? So, um, I mean, it could be a myriad of things, but some speculation are that uh, something happened with a drug transaction or something happened that maybe the folks that were in there realized, wait a minute, these guys, there's a whole lot of dope in this house. Um, that was so, something else that I was wondering. So you did find a lot. The detectives did find a lot. Okay, of so one of the things, there, there should have been a lot in there. Okay. Um, there was a small amount that was recovered um, from, from the scene. There was a couple of marijuana cigarettes. There was 25 grams in a, in a mm. bottle. But word was that the detectives received, and th those had not been verified or, or validated, but that they had received a shipment. And so that should have been in this apartment. Uh, and, and it wasn't. And so we, uh, the, the apartment had been ransacked, uh, meaning they were looking for something. I say they, he, she, the person or the persons that were involved were looking for, for something. Mm -hmm. What they got, we don't know. Um, all indications are there was money missing and quite possibly drugs missing and we know that there's a firearm missing. Any surveillance video? No, there wasn't at the time. That was one of the things that um, that I keyed into when I began researching this, is looking to see were there any pulled. And there was a note in here that there was not any mm -hmm. in the apartment. And I know you just started going through this yes, case, but how confident do you feel about being Yeah, well, so I, I, th I feel like we have a great opportunity here to explore some things that had previously either not been explored or had only been explored up to the standards of 10 years ago. And there's some things that I believe will um, maybe shed some light on that or possibly could shed some light on that when these are submitted for analysis. Mm -hmm. And these people either interviewed for the first time or re-interviewed. Thank you so much, Detective Reeves, for your time. Yes, Anything else that, that maybe I didn't ask that no, you would I, like I to think, tell the community? Um, no, I, I think um, all of that is um, you know, kind of the sum total of the case. I think just like in anyone, um, you know, we're, a, we're a community. We live, we live together, whether we live in the same apartment complex, but we're a community here uh, in the city. And the only way that we can stop these things and the only way that we can make this city better is to work together. And I know a lot of people are reluctant to talk with the police. I, I understand that, I get that. And that I've talked to some people who say, you know, detective, that's a great, you know, that, that you care about these things, but I have to live here and you don't. And so mm -hmm. I, I understand that. Um, there are ways that you can contact us either through um, Project Cold Case or with um, uh, Crime Stoppers to remain anonymous. Um, or, or contact us directly and you can do that. And I think that there are some folks who have some direct information on this. And a lot of times people will think, well, you know, the police already know that or that's not important, it's in, insignificant. But, you know, I, I would say again, let us be the judge of that. Let us, let us vet through that information. Let's work together to make this city a better place. Let's work together to make our streets a safer place. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, this little girl and this little boy lost their father, and, um, and, and Mr. Davis, this family friend, um, this wife lost her husband. And I, I would say that could really be any of us. That could touch any of us, our neighbors, our aunts, uncles, you know, our, our own selves. And I would just compel people, um, let's, let's do the right thing. Let, let's talk about this. And, and whatever information you may have, we, we would like to know. Detective Reeves, I don't know if this is mentioned in the case file, but it, it sounds like there was a lot of activity coming, people coming in and out of this apartment. Did any neighbors ever call before this crime happened, saying, well, I, I don't have going on? what we call that as a CAD report. Okay. It's a, uh, I don't have that in okay. this file, if there were other things. I do know that several of the neighbors were, were interviewed and some of the other young adults that would hang out there, and they loved uh, Mr. John. They called him that, and they said he was nice. He wouldn't hurt anyone. Yes, we know he sold marijuana, but he was just a nice person and so they were they were affected by this in, in in their community as well thank you so much for your time yes ma'am thank you thank you everyone for joining us on our project cold case podcast for all our listeners i'm sitting here with the the founder of project cold case himself ryan backman and today we're going to talk about a particularly gruesome case that happened 10 years ago double homicide of John Stoner, who was 41 years old, and Leonard Davis, 69. And uh, we are going to be highlighting this case on, on the next segment of Project Cold Case. Yeah. Tell us about, uh, well, you put us in touch with the family, so right. we appreciate that. And that's the whole point of this partnership. It, it is, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, Mr. Stoner's um, sister, actually, Siobhan, reached out to us and submitted his case through our website um, pretty recently, within a few few weeks, a month ago, something like that. Um, as ways, as these things sometimes have a way of happening, JSO had also crossed their desk. I don't know if maybe she contacted them at the exact same time, but you know, in our conversations about cases to, to feature, we had this one sitting there ready. Um, sister lives out of town now, uh, but she is um, very anxious to get this case um, some attention and hopefully resolved. Uh, she's planning on traveling uh, to do an interview with you uh, in the mm -hmm. next couple of days uh, because it's that important to her. And you know, for us to be able to to help facilitate that, uh, something we take great pride in as a as a group that provides services for families of unsolved homicides. Uh, she, you know, ten years, she's still been waiting and wondering, and um, and so you know, hopefully with this segment, mm -hmm. we'll get some answers for her. Yeah, and, and she said exactly what we've been talking about these, since we've known each other. She feels like her brother is forgotten. Yeah. And, and she says she's really happy to, to be able to, to talk about him at the very least, just update people on their yeah, lives she, and the case. She was ready to drop everything and drive up, you know, mm -hmm. the day we talked to her and yeah. reached out to her. Um, you know, one of the, the issues that we deal with sometimes, this is a double homicide, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Mr. Stoner's family reached out to us and, and we've been able to, to have communication with him. But Mr. Davis's family, we've had a hard time getting in touch with, with that family member. Uh, our information is that she's not local. Um, you know, and those are things that are hard. We try and try to get in touch with these families, um, but you know, we hope that, that this reaches them somehow, some way, and that they know that, that their loved one's case is as important, even though you know, they're not the impetus to get this right. on, on the news. Right. Yeah, everybody's family is different. Some families are really, really want to be involved and talk. And not that, not that this is the case for Leonard sure. Davis's family, but some families don't don't want to yeah, relive some, it. Some families know? don't. Yeah. Some families just change phone numbers, move. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some families haven't been 
as vocally, mm -hmm. you know, apparent as other families haven't been as involved in the investigation. I'm sure uh, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office could tell stories about families that call weekly versus families that they haven't heard from in 10 years. Right. Um, everybody deals with it a little bit differently. Um, we always try to reach out to them to make sure they know that this is going to happen. Not that that um, it's up to them whether it happens or not. These cases, again, there's a public safety aspect where um, there's bad bad people out there that have have caused mm -hmm. these these homicides, and and we need to they need to be held accountable for their actions. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it, it is always you know we we want the family to see it, know it's going to happen before it shows up on TV if we can help right. it. It doesn't always work that way. And then sometimes families don't have um, great relationships within their, their own dynamic. And so, you know, sometimes we, we interview one family member and then another family member wants to know why they weren't, you know, mm -hmm. contacted. And, and a lot of that is out of our control. We're, we're dealing with um, the, the information we have at the time, which is usually the family member that submitted a case to us. Um, with JSO, it's typically the next of kin. It's there's the one point of contact that was the closest surviving family member to that victim. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we encourage all family members uh, to reach out to us at least. I mean, we'll keep track of mm -hmm. of siblings, parents, children, cousins, nephews. Um, you know, sometimes like in the you know, case we spoke about earlier, it's a nephew that really is the vocal one. Um, so we encourage those families to reach out to us however they can, uh, whenever they want, whether their case is local or out of city, out of state, and we'll help however we can. If at the very least, I hope that this podcast and this segment shows people that cold cases are not forgotten, right. that the detectives are still working even decades later, that people like you care, and, and we all want to see this solved. Yeah, uh, you know, these cases were being investigated long before Project Cold Case was around and long before we had this segment uh, on Action News, mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't really publicized, they weren't right. talked about that they were doing it. So we have had an opportunity here to shine a light on work that was always being done. Um, you know, sometimes it's a lot harder for the detectives to reach out and say, hey, we're taking a look at a case because, well, we found it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to look at it. And then call back, you know, a couple months later and say, yeah, there was nothing there. Mm -hmm. You know, that's difficult and it's not always a conversation that's easy to have. Um, for us, we always encourage the families to know it's always a good thing when that case is being looked at because just bringing it up to the current investigative standards means that if there was anything there that had not been tested or the technology was not good enough at the time, right. uh, there's a chance. There's always a chance. And so um, we encourage the families not to get down, even if you know this bringing it up to the new standards doesn't end this time in a resolution. It's mm -hmm. always a step closer and it's always uh, an eye on the, the, the ultimate goal, which is solving it. You have a very important trip coming up. Yes, You're going to be meeting with some lawmakers up in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that. I do. So uh, I participated in a cold case conference down in St. Pete uh, in December, and uh, I spoke at the conference, and there was a lot of people from all over the country at the conference, including people from D.C. that work for the Department of Justice. And so that started a conversation about funding for cold cases that is basically non-existent in 2018. Um, outside of sexual assault rape kits that had not been tested, there's some funding out there for those, but no other funding from the Department of Justice in 2018 for cold cases. Um, we know from our conversations with law enforcement across the country that funding is a big part of, of why cases remain cold and remain unsolved. 
whether it be travel for the detectives, whether it be uh, testing through private labs uh, that are available. There's a lot of, money should never be the reason why a case is not solved, uh, in my opinion. And, and we've had conversations with uh, cold case task forces from across the country and they say, oh, well, you know, we have 22 cases, 12 of them have DNA, but we don't have any money to actually test it. And that to me just, you know, is unacceptable. Um, so I started talking to these uh, Department of Justice members and, and they were on board. They said, you know, we can't believe that there's no funding either. So we're fighting for cold case funding moving forward. And I offered to assist any way I could, which is typically uh, as a face of an unsolved homicide with my dad's case still being unsolved, I can go up and I can speak um, about what it's like to be a family and to know that it might be four or $5,000 be the difference between a solved case and an unsolved case. And I think that coming from me can be pretty powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. I hope it can be, that's the, the goal anyway. So uh, Sergeant Jansen's gonna go with me. Uh, we're gonna go up uh, this week. We're gonna speak to Congressman Rutherford who was a former sheriff here in Jacksonville mm -hmm. um, and just kind of let him know what our goals are and what we're hoping to accomplish, what we would like to see and get his opinion on whether he thinks that's uh, something feasible. He, he's going to hopefully be a supporter because he's been on the law enforcement side of it. He's going to have intimate knowledge of cold cases. He was the sheriff when my dad was murdered. So, um, so he and I have had conversations in the past. Um, so we'll, we'll be able to gauge his interest in what he thinks um, you know, Congress can do. And then the following morning we'll meet with the Department of Justice and we'll meet with some of the, the powers that be there and give our pitch of why it's so important. And, you know, this will be a, a big picture um, trip because this will be something that, you know, may or may not trickle down to Project Cold Case specifically, but this is an opportunity for us to on a huge scale help cold right. cases all across the country. And, um, you know, every law enforcement agency we've talked to, uh, state attorney's office, everybody is very much on board and supportive. Uh, I went down and met with Sheriff Sadie Darnell in Gainesville last Monday. Um, she's, you know, given me a laundry list of things that I can bring up um, as ways to point us in the right direction to get some funding for cold cases everywhere. I was going to say, this is not just, you know, a Jacksonville project. Right. This is, you could potentially help the entire country yeah. with I mean, funding. That, for, and that's our goal. Yeah. That's our goal because we certainly can't do it alone. We need law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, we need media. We need a lot of people to make these things happen. And, uh, and unfortunately, money is one of the things that we need to make this stuff happen too. And as a nonprofit, we don't have enough to, to yeah. pass out to, to agencies to get DNA testing done um, for all the cases that need it. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is a step in that direction. Um, you know, they, they realize, we know there's people within the Department of Justice that recognize an issue here. So mm -hmm. I'm hopeful to, to put a face with that and to give them uh, a reason to, to earmark some money for cold cases moving forward, hopefully in 2019 and beyond. Well, I'm glad that you and Sergeant Jansen are gonna be going over there and speaking with you know, the people in power who, yeah. have, who can do something about the funding. So Absolutely. I hope well, it turns out well. Thank you, and we'll definitely keep you updated and let you know once we get back. How Please do, yeah. please let us know. Thank you so much, Ryan, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Lana. Action News Jack's Project Cold Case airs the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month on Action News Jack's at 5.30. You can also find all of our stories, interviews, pictures, and documents on actionnewsjacks.com. Just look for the Project Cold Case button. 
And listeners, we hope you share this podcast on your social platforms. Lorena and I also welcome your questions. Tweet us at Paige A.N. Jax or Lorena A.N. Jax. 